Our lesson this evening comes from Nahum chapter 1. Looking at Nahum himself for just a few moments and then also looking at uh, some, some lessons from Nineveh concerning the doom that was to come upon Nineveh. And I want to show what we can learn from God's punishment of Nineveh. There's, one, there's several common themes throughout the prophets, but one of them is that sin is always punished. People sin, they're given a chance to repent, given a time to repent and come back to God. God pleads with them, a prophet goes to them and warns them, and then when they still refuse, God brings His wrath upon them. I want us to begin by looking at uh, uh, Nahum himself, learning about Nahum, then also a little bit about Nineveh. Not a lot is actually known about Nahum himself. His name means constellation or or consoler. Uh, Nahum is from, as we see in verse 1, he is from uh, Elkosh. He is a Elkoshite. Uh, he also, we find, uh, as we look at that location, it's actually the exact location is really not even known. Uh, many look for its location in Judah or in uh, southern Palestine. He is said to some to be the most poetic of all the prophets, and that's why it's called by some Nahum the poet, because of the language we find, as we'll see as we go through this, uh, very, being very poetic and uh, figurative in nature, uh, but no doubt bring about some very strong points to, for us to think about. Nineveh, however, we are not unfamiliar with, as we know from Jonah as well, it has uh, had a, a series of, of times where it has gone off and, and strayed from God. Nineveh was the capital and chief city of Assyria. Assyria itself was very cruel, violent, and barbaric. And as I was looking at this and looking things up, it seemed like every commentator and some historians always mention the idea about hey, how they took pride really in how barbaric they were. All of them made mention of how they took pride in flaying the skins of their enemies. They took pride in stacking up, making pyramids out of the heads of their enemies and various things like that. And they go into more detail, which we don't really need to know. But they were very barbaric, very uh, graphically violent, you might say, uh, a group of people. And so it was a very cruel place, and Nineveh was its capital. Uh, the building of Nineveh is found, it's mentioned there in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. The Bible mentions specifically Nineveh being built or being founded way back in Genesis chapter 10. And so we have here, as we look here, a little bit about Nahum, a little bit about Nineveh. I, don't, I purposely do not want to spend a whole lot of time with them because I want our focus to be on the text of Nahum chapter 1 itself, looking at the doom of Nineveh. We find in, in Nahum chapter 1, the Bible says, The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkshite, I'll get that right. When that word's separated in your, in your Bible sometimes, it makes it a little more hard to pay attention to how you say it. But anyway, verse 2 says, God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. Looking at verses 2 and 3. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and, his, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. You notice there in verse 2 how God's feelings about these workers of evil, how it is explained. 
God is jealous, which tells us God wants us all to himself, right? I had someone ask me before, you know, the Bible condemns jealousy. How can we explain God being a jealous God? Well, there is a difference between jealousy and what we call a righteous jealousy. Because in this sense, it is very much a righteous jealousy because God wants us to belong to Him, be followers of Him, and no one else. The purpose behind it is because He wants us to have heaven as our home, not because God is some greedy God. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries, and He reserves wrath for his enemies. Notice there it says the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance. Do you think the Lord is mad about sin in verse 2? I mean how many times do you have to read the word vengeance or vengeance here and furious to realize that the Lord is not pleased with these people who had gone off into sin and were doing extreme wickedness before him. The Bible says there in verse 2 and he reserves wrath now notice, for his enemies. Now his enemies would be those who are against him. Those who are against him are those who do not follow his commands. The unfaithful, the unrighteous, the workers of iniquity, all those types of people are, would fall in the classification of those who are his enemies in verse 2. We do not want to be an enemy of God. We want to be a friend of God, and we are when we obey His Word. Today we obey the Gospel, and we continue to obey His Word. We no longer are His, we will not be one of His enemies. We see there in verse 2, He reserves, you might say He preserves it, He keeps it back for a special group of people, and in verse 2 He says, it's for His enemies, it's for the wicked. But also notice in verse 3, the Bible says, The Lord is slow to anger, and great in power. Well, how can the Lord be slow to anger and great in power? Yet we find in verse 2, it's all about how the Lord is going to bring wrath upon them. Because the wrath comes when the Lord finally decides that, that is enough, right? He is long-suffering until there's no more time left to endure their rebellion. The Lord is slow to anger. If the Lord, Think about this. If the Lord was slow to anger, would He even bother speaking through Nahum the prophet? Would he even bother sending anyone? If he, was slow to, if he was not slow to anger, he would just see these wicked people and just bury them under the earth with fire from heaven, right? That's what he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, but not before he gave them a chance to repent. So we think about this idea of him being slow to anger and being one who avenges, one who is furious. Well, his fury only comes after his long-suffering, you might say, comes to an end. When it becomes abundantly clear that people are going to rebel, not listen to here in this situation, the Nahum, and what's going to happen? God's going to bring wrath upon them. He says in verse 3, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And it will not at all acquit the wicked, which means the wicked will not escape. There will be no getting off. We hear sometimes people say, well, they got off scot-free. We talk about a criminal getting out of jail time. Sometimes we use that idea. But that's not what's going to happen with the wicked. And will not at all acquit the wicked. They will not get away with it. The Lord has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds of the dust of His feet. Why do you find that phrase in there in verse 3? Why would you talk about the Lord has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds of the dust of His feet? What does that have to do with God's vengeance? It means that no one can stop God 
from pouring out his wrath upon him, pouring out his wrath upon the wicked. He's going to have his way. He is in control. For that reason, in verse 3, no one can stop him from pouring out his wrath upon those wicked people who have brought his long-suffering say to the very end. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind, then in the storm, and in the clouds or the dust of his feet. Is he going to have his way in his wrath against the wicked? Absolutely. Looking at verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6, rather, we find the terribleness of his anger against sin. He says there in verse 4, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. And he dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flowers of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. You think about what he's talking about there in verse 4. It's very clear that everything, including here, to show that every man is going to tremble before God, he even uses the idea here how the sea, he makes it dry and dries up all the rivers, which means that God does whatever he wants, wherever he wants. Bashan and Carmel wither, the flower of Lebanon wilts, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. What is he talking about there in verses 4 and 5? He's saying that every person fears should fear him because he's going to bring righteous punishment upon the wicked. We want to make sure we're not one of those who are his enemies, as we saw back in verse 2 and 3. We want to be those who are not on the wrong side of God, because you find in verses 4 and 5 that literally everyone and everything in verse 5 will do what? He says here, yes, the world and all who dwell in it will heave or quake at the presence of God. He says in verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? That is, who can stand before his wrath? Who can endure it? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. If the God of heaven, as we know, can create the world in six days, can he destroy man in a moment? Well, absolutely. That's why he asked this question here. When he says, who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury, he says, is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. God is the one who unleashes his fury. He's the one who unleashes his wrath. He compares the two here like his fury is being poured out like fire. And the rocks are thrown down. That is, the judgment is brought down by God. He's the one who throws the rocks, right? You remember when they brought the, the woman caught in adultery, the couple caught in adultery before Moses. You remember who was the first one who threw the stone? It was Moses, right? We find here, who's the one who, who makes the judgment here in verse 6? It's the Lord. He says, and the rocks are thrown down by him. He's the one who pronounces judgment upon them. There in verse 6. It's interesting as we go through this, though, that just as we saw in verse 2, and then we saw in verse 3, you find God's wrath, then you find his long-suffering mentioned. You find his wrath in verses 4 through 6, and then what would you find in verse 7? The Lord is good. How do you follow up the Lord's going to throw down the stones upon them with the Lord is good? 
Because those who combat evil, those who punish wickedness, those who stand against that which is against God, those who stand against wickedness are good. He says in verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who trust in Him. Those who, who God sees as His followers, those who sees as His loyal, uh, uh, loyal servants, He knows who they are here in verse 7. This is not the idea that God knows from the beginning of time who's going to be those who are following Him. That's not what He's talking about. That's way out of context. What he's saying here in verse 7. He knows who the loyal ones are. He knows who the wicked ones are. And he's coming for those wicked ones who are his enemies. He knows the difference between the two. He doesn't just bring chaos upon everybody. He knows who his followers are. He says he knows those who trust in him. The greatness of his mercy and the stronghold for the faithful is what we find here in verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Why do we go down into a storm cellar when tornadoes come? It's a stronghold, right? We don't call it that, but that's what it is. It's designed just like the stronghold is designed to endure whatever's going to come upon it. The storm shelter is the same idea, right? We get down in there because it's designed to endure whatever storm is coming up from above. Here we find in verse 7, the Lord is our stronghold. He will endure. We can hang on to Him in the day of trouble. And best of all, he knows those who trust in him. He knows those who treat him as their stronghold. Looking at verse 8, we find the Lord as a pursuer of his enemies. He says, but with an over, overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. You think about that idea, darkness will pursue his enemies. That idea they are just being chased by God's wrath. There is no safe place for them. We find also in the gospel accounts how there will be those in the day of judgment who will cry out for the hills to fall upon them, the mountains to hide them. We find here in verse 8 the idea that darkness is going to pursue his enemies. There will be no place to hide. Wherever they go, wrath is going to follow them because they are in contradiction to God. He says in verse 8, with an overflowing flood, he'll make an utter end of its place. And darkness, punishment, will pursue his enemies. Death will follow those who are his enemies. We find in verses 9 through 13, the end of Nineveh is announced. In verses 9 through 13, looking at verse 9 through 11 first, we find here looking at verse 9, he says, What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make it an utter, he'll make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a, a, up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor there in verses 9 through 11. We find here that God's faithfulness in the, in the present crisis, that is the affliction that would come from Assyria as in the past, we find there looking at verse 10 and 11, he says there, the affliction will not rise up a second time. God's going to make sure what? They don't just come back. It's like that weed he keeps plucking. He keeps coming back. God says they're not coming back. When he plucks them up and he burns them out, they stay gone. Looking at verse 11, 
or rather looking at the latter part of verse 10 and 11, he says, They shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. Well, we know full well how quickly dry grass burns, don't we? That's when we have warnings all the time. You see signs, you drive by fire fire stations where they have that fire warning where you don't want to see it in the red because that means you want to be very careful about doing anything outside that could cause a flame to start. He says here in verse 10, they shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. He says, from you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. From you means from among them comes someone who is plotting against God. But back in the verse 9, what does he say? What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. People will always sometimes... When you talk with someone about Bible matters sometimes, you have them try to explain away the truth, don't you? And that's why we start hearing people say, well, I believe or I feel. What they're doing is trying to conspire a way to overlook or to ignore certain sections of Scripture because they want to do whatever they want to do and ignore what the truth is. And we find in verse 9, that's a similar idea, right? They're conspiring against the Lord saying, well, we can overcome and we can endure. We just do this or this or this. It wouldn't matter. How do you survive? How do you fight God who literally rains fire from heaven as we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah? How do you fight God who literally floods the entire earth to kill all those wicked individuals? How do you fight a God who destroyed the armies of, of Egypt when they pursued Israel out, right? How do you fight a God like that? Well, you can't. How do you fight a God who saves men from a burning, fiery furnace? Well, you can't. How do you fight a God who saves a man from the mouth of a lion? Well, you can't. That's when we ask the question in verse 9, what do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. There's no way to fight against God. There's stubborn rebellion, but it's just that. It's only stubborn rebellion. Looking at verses 12 and 13, Thus says the Lord, Though they are safe, and likewise many, are they really safe? Now, the idea here is that they believe they are safe. They have gone to their favorite little hidey hole, I say sometimes, and they believe they're fine. They're safe. No one can touch us here. They are many, which means there's a lot of them who are doing evil, perhaps even outnumbering those who are trying to do what is good. They are, though they are safe, and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. Judah is delivered from the yoke of Assyria by destruction of Nineveh's power in verses 12 and 13. He says, I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. He was going to bring freedom for Judah from these wicked people of Assyria by overcoming and destroying these wicked individuals in Nineveh. We find, looking at verses 14 and 15, that Assyria's grave is made, and also the good news will come to Judah. So we look at verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, the Bible says, The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated uh, no longer. Out of the house of your gods will cut off a carved image and a molten image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. One of the reasons I know that I have done a lesson like this before, because I remember that phrase, I will dig your grave. That to me, that's one terrifying thought. 
But especially when it, but it's, it's terrifying to think about, but when we think about it, it's coming from God. It's not a threat. It's not an empty threat. It's a promise. Because he's talking to wicked people of Nineveh. He says there in verse, 12, verse 14, rather, Your name shall be perpetuated no longer, means it's not going to continue. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. You know, idolatry is a common problem during that time. But friends, it still is today. If we not take the form of a golden image or a silver, silver creature, but we certainly do put things before God. He says, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. Then he says, I will dig your grave, talking to those of Nineveh, because of their wickedness. And he says, why there in verse 14, he says, because you are vile. They were so wicked. It doesn't just say because you're in sin, because of your great iniquity. He says literally that you are vile. That's how bad they have become. But yet we end in, in verse 15 on a high note. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Which means the Lord is providing protection for Judah. He says, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, remain loyal to God. Then he says in verse 15, for the wicked one being a reference to, you could say, to Nineveh or Syria as a whole, he says, shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The Lord's going to bring wrath upon them. And there we find in verse 15, rejoicing, right? Behold, in the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. And the peace is coming because God's bringing peace in the form of destroying the wicked people of Nineveh. Sometimes to bring peace, wicked people have to come to an end. That's not a popular idea today, but in the Bible we find it's one we see numerous times again. Because when you, when you kill the plant completely, all the way down to its root, there's no way for it to come back. Unless the faithful, the ones who go back and build it up themselves. God, was, we find here in verse 15, was going to utterly cut them off. Some lessons for us today. The Lord is a jealous God and an avenging God. Looking at verse 2, he says here, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The God, God is jealous. Again, he wants us all for himself. The Lord wants us to himself and rightly so. Romans 12 and verse 19 tells us, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord will bring judgment upon the wicked people of this world. And no one can bring righteous judgment like God. The Lord is jealous, a jealous God, an avenging God. He also is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger. Looking at verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. If he wasn't slow to anger, friends, they would have been wiped off a lot sooner. The Lord is patient until judgment must be carried out. Second Peter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, 
but all should come to repentance. He was long-suffering to Nineveh until wrath was necessary. We also find that the Lord will hold the guilty accountable. The Lord will hold the guilty accountable. Looking at the latter part of verse 3. He says, And he will not at all acquit the wicked. The wicked will not get away. The Lord will bring righteous judgment upon them. The Lord will, as we see there in verse 3, have his way with the wicked. They will pay the price of sin. Sin has a price and they will not escape it. We also find that there are no second chances. Looking at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, he says, An overflowing flood I will make an utter end of its place, and darkness, darkness will pursue his enemies. Would you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. They had had their chance, right? On the day of judgment, we too will not have a second chance. That's why we must be ready for the judgment day. Repentance is necessary because there are no second chances. Nineveh had their chance and refused to turn back to God, and judgment was due. Hebrews 9 and verse 27 tells us, As it's appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment to die once, which means there's not a second chance. We want to make sure we get it right the first time. Hebrews 9, verse 27. Our last point to consider, it doesn't matter how many are on the side of evil, they will be punished. No matter how big the crowd may be, how loud they may be, how violent they may be, they will still be punished. Looking at Nahum chapter 1, looking at verse 12, Thus says the Lord, though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this, in this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. He says what? They will be cut down. Though they think they are safe, though they are many, they're still going to be punished. God does not care how many oppose righteousness. You will not be swayed to tolerate evil just because of the number of those who are on the side of evil. We must also remember what Christ says in Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, when he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Just because a lot of people go in through it doesn't mean it's the right one. Because narrow is the gate, verse 14, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. We want to be on the right side, not just on the side of many. We want to be on the right side, which many times means we're on the side with very few. Those who want to do what is right and good in the sight of God may not always find themselves among the big crowds, and that's okay. We may not be those who are invited in with the large groups. But friends, if we are doing what is right and good in the sight of God, we are following His Word, then that is all that matters. We want to be those who follow God and not a crowd. God is merciful and slow to wrath, but when, he, but when the rebellious refuse to turn back, they are punished. We see it time and time again throughout the prophets, right? Repent, repent, repent. Rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. Warning, warning, warning. Arrogance and rebellion. Punishment. Over and over again. On the day of judgment, 
The same fate waits for the wicked, thus we must prepare for judgment day now. Many of Christ's parables, or at least several of them, I should say, deal with being prepared. The parable of the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish, be prepared, right? The man who had great riches and decided to tear down his barns and build greater, and then what happened? He died, and he said, now who are these things going to be, right? We must be prepared. We think about Nahum chapter 1. One thing is clear. God saw those rebellious people, and what's important is because they were rebellious, because they were unwilling to repent, they became, as we found back in verses 2 and 3, they became his enemies. We also find that as we get to the end of chapter 1, he makes a promise that he will dig their grave because they are vile people. We don't want to be those who are on the side of having a grave dug for us. We want to be those on the side of God because we are following His commands. Those, as Nahum says, treat God as their stronghold. This evening, as you think about these things, we can encourage you or help you in any way. You can come forward now. That's going to be saying, sing the song that's been selected. <laughs>